From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For now, it appears Iran and the United States are standing down militarily, even as Congress gets set to debate the president's power to declare war. Today, perspective from Christopher Hill, former ambassador to Iraq, who lives in Denver. Then... This is a lockdown drill. Locks, lights, out of sight. This is a drill. Lockdown drills have become common since Columbine. They're supposed to help keep kids safe. But is there a trade-off? Does it make them feel more prepared? Does it make them feel more scared? Sort of what's the takeaway from the students about this? Plus, we explore the missing middle, people who can't afford or can't find a home in Metro Denver. A panel discussion led by Denverite's housing reporter Donna Bryson looks into the causes and possible solutions for this ongoing and frustrating issue that extends across the state. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Tensions in the Middle East escalated on Tuesday when Iran launched ballistic missiles at two military bases housing U.S. troops in Iraq. President Trump addressed Americans Wednesday morning. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. No American or Iraqi lives were lost because of the precautions taken, the dispersal of forces, and an early warning system that worked very well. Iran called the attacks proportionate measures in self-defense for the American killing of Major General Qasem Soleimani. While President Trump did not signal further military action, he did promise more economic sanctions. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. For perspective, we're bringing in Christopher Hill. He was an ambassador to Iraq in 2009 and through 2010. Now he's the chief advisor to the Chancellor for Global Engagement at the University of Denver. Ambassador Hill, welcome. Thank you very much. Watching the events of the last few days unfold, the killing of Soleimani, retaliatory attacks on American military bases in Iraq, some worry that the U.S. is teetering on the edge of war with Iran. President Trump says that Iran appears to be standing down. How do you look at the situation? Well, I think it's pretty clear the Iranians had no interest in going to war with the U.S. At the same time, it's a part of the world where you, you have to kind of avenge uh, a death like uh, that of Soleimani. So I think they kind of uh, thought about it and decided they would attack a U.S. military uh, facility, but do so in a way that minimized the risk of casualties. And so I think they were successful in that regard. The question, of course, is what's next? Do they have something they want to do afterwards? Will they do more indirect things through their various uh, Shia Iraqi militia groups? How will they, uh, they move on from this? I mean, Soleimani, terrible as he was, um, he kind of organized the militia groups such that they were kind of on one team. Now I think it's going to be a little uh, more disparate, and we could see militia groups kind of take things into their hands. When you say more indirect things, what sort of things are on your mind? Well, having lived in Iraq and having uh, had my motorcade uh, attacked by some Shia group called Promise Day Brigade, if I'm not mistaken, um, I, I doubt Soleimani ordered them to uh, attack my uh, motorcade. But um, I think we can look forward to more su- 
such activities. Iran or Iranian-inspired terrorism is more of a regional phenomenon in the Middle East. I, they have not done what the Sunni groups have done, which is try to attack targets in Europe and the U.S., and I suspect they'll keep to that pattern, and we'll just see more sort of instability and uh, various violent attacks in Iraq. And you mentioned several times that this is a military target that was Iran attacked. What do you think that that signals rather than, say, attacking a civilian one? I think it shows some restraint, I mean, for lack of a better word. Uh, I think the Iraqis understood that, uh, the Iranians understood that to attack civilian groups is to uh, really uh, uh, agree with the proposition that they're out-and-out terrorists. And so I, under, I think they understood that was not in their interest. You know, they have a lot of support around the world for the issue of President Trump pulling uh, the U.S. out of the uh, nuclear deal and then trying to, uh, in, in effect, bully other countries in, into doing the same. So there's a lot of uh, uh, implicit support for Iran. I never thought I'd live to see the day where European allies are asking Iran and the U.S. to show restraint. Usually you expect an ally to be on your side, not mediating the thing. So I think the Iranians understood they've kind of come a long way. And I think they want to keep the kind of support they do have in the world right now. And in the same vein of wondering about the specific targets, why attack a target in Iraq rather than somewhere else? Well, first of all, they know the place very well. Uh, I think it meets with what their uh, their military systems can accomplish. And, uh, and I think it involves sort of not uh, widening or deepening the conflict, that is to stay in a, in a part of the world where you know, things like that have happened before. So um, in a funny sort of way, it's part of a sort of restrained uh, response. And what about the situation in Iraq itself? It seems to be caught in the middle of this conflict with both Iran and the United States attacking targets on Iraqi soil. What's at stake both for Iraq and the United States' relations with Iraq? Well, you bet. I think this is probably the most critical aspect of the whole uh, uh, crisis. Uh, I- Iraq, which has had problematic governments ever since uh, the U.S. went in there, has one right now, a government that uh, for months and months had to battle street demonstrators, killing many of them, by the way, and really not answering the uh, justified needs of its population in terms of electricity and food and health care and things like that. Their prime minister, who... Uh, when I was there, uh, we talked to him many times, very smart guy, very well-educated guy, but he's had, to, he's had to resign, and he's a caretaker prime minister. So I think, once again, we have a very weak Iraqi government. And I think the key question will be, given the weakness of the government and given the strength of the uh, Shia militia groups, will the government be able to withstand the pressure in the parliament to tell the Americans to go home? And I think there is a feeling among many Iraqis who kind of can have two conflicting thoughts in their head at the same time. One, that they kind of like having the U.S. there, but two, that perhaps the U.S. is bringing them nothing but trouble. And so we need to watch that space very carefully in the days ahead, whether the Iraqis are going to say, look, Americans, we love you, but you're really more trouble than you're worth. And uh, I think this would be a huge setback for our interests in the region. And I think the Iranians uh, have a great interest in seeing us uh, leave the region with our tail between our legs. And I, I think that is 
probably the biggest threat that this whole tit-for-tat uh, uh, episode has. I mean, and there's something to that effect already happened on Sunday. The Iraqi parliament voted to ask for the withdrawal of American troops from the country. What do you make of that vote? Well, that's it's clear the sentiment is there to say, Americans, you know, time to leave. There is that sentiment. Uh, President Trump has, has said on more than one occasion that we've completely defeated, annihilated ISIS. He uses very strong terms to suggest how how much we've uh, kind of routed ISIS. And so that's kind of the talking point for someone who says, look, then what are you doing here? Why don't you leave? We don't need you here anymore. So um, I am not one of these forever war types. I don't think we should be leaving thousands and thousands of troops in, in Iraq. I don't find it analogous to some of the other places where we have permanent deployments, whether in Germany or South Korea. But um, I think having some presence there is a good idea for our own interests in terms of dealing with the threats to us coming from things like ISIS or whatever comes next from ISIS. But uh, I think the Iraqis may be uh, on the brink of saying, please leave. And um, I don't think we'll have much choice but to do that. The president suggested we could sanction Iraq and uh, because, after all, we put in a lot of expensive equipment in these bases. Uh, I don't think that dog is going to hunt. And uh, I I think if we have to leave, we're going to have to leave. And as this happens, the U.S. is deploying thousands more troops to the Middle East. And at the same time, NATO troops from countries like Canada and Germany that were in Iraq for training operations are withdrawing because of security concerns. So what do these sort of international changes in militarization signal to you? Well, this is this is a dynamic that has been going on for a few years now. Uh, We have had allies and partners who've been willing to go with us in these operations. Sometimes they don't bring a lot of troops to the task, but they're there. And it's been, I think, very valuable that these have been international efforts and not just American efforts. But I think the decision to leave the, the Iran nuclear deal without any real thought or concept uh, as to what would come next, not only infuriated the the Iranians, but also infuriated many of our allies. And when they look at the um, uh, takedown of Soleimani, uh, they kind of wonder, well, Americans, what is your plan? What are you trying to do? Soleimani is a terrible guy. And so if we want to engage in revenge killings, that's you know fine, but we ought to be clear about that. And uh, so I think we have lost a lot of support in the world. Um, I think anyone who's traveled abroad in the last couple of years knows the depth of feelings toward the American uh, administration right now. And it's uh, it's not at all a pretty picture. And so if you are of the view that somehow these allies are kind of freeloaders in the first place, to have them kind of uh, leave their training missions and go home, Uh, is actually proof of what you've been saying. So I'm not sure the Trump administration quite minds it as much as they should. Events that we and the rest of the world will be watching closely. Ambassador Hill, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Christopher Hill was the U.S. ambassador to Iraq in 2009 and 2010. Now he's the professor and chief advisor to the Chancellor of Global Engagement at DU. School lockdown drills have become mainstream since the 1999 shootings at Columbine High School in Littleton. But they're controversial. Some people think that they unnecessarily traumatize children. Others say they're needed to prepare kids for the possibility of a school shooting, even if it's slight. 
Jacqueline Schulkraut is Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at State University of New York at Oswego. She just completed a study about how kids perceive these drills. Welcome to the program, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with your personal connection to this issue. You've been studying mass shootings for quite a while, but a couple of recent shootings hit particularly close to home. You've lived in Orlando, the site of the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016. You've also lived in the Parkland area near Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where there was a shooting in 2018. In the case of the Parkland shooting, you've pointed out how poorly the school was prepared for an emergency. What was missing? One of the biggest gaping holes is the fact that they weren't prepared in terms of training. Teachers had had very little training with regards to um, emergency response like lockdown procedures, and the students had had no training. They also had not conducted any drills to practice their responses. So as a result, you know, when things started unfolding on that day, People were responding the way that they felt was natural or the way that we're normally trained to do with things like a fire drill. You know, we hear a fire alarm, we line up, we proceed out of the building. And as a result, there were a number of people on the third floor still in the hallway when the perpetrator came up the stairwell. And unfortunately, some of them lost their lives that day. Of course, you can never know how well prepared a school is for a shooting until something awful happens. But you've conducted drills and surveyed thousands of students. What did you want to find out? We were looking to see not only in practicing these lockdown drills, were they becoming more effective in their responses, but also um, how did they feel about it? So, you know, does it make them feel more prepared? Does it make them feel more scared? Sort of what's the takeaway from the students about this? And last year, CPR did a podcast since Columbine about the effects of the shooting 20 years later. One episode focused on school lockdowns and specifically your research on them in school districts in Syracuse, New York. We visited and observed some of your drills. At one of the schools we visited, your team walks into the school unannounced and asks the principal to read an announcement over the loudspeaker about a drill. You can hear the principal is a bit surprised when you show up. Can you read that right now, please? Hi, it's Mr. What are we doing this? Right now. Right this second? Right this second. I'm sorry. All righty. Did I miss something? Nope. All right. Okay. This is a lockdown drill. Locks lights out of sight. This is a drill. Lockdown drill. Locks lights out of sight. We're going to talk about what you found out from students after you conducted these drills. But I noticed you had the principal say locks lights out of sight. That's part of one protocol that is done nationally in many schools. And in a school setting, what might locks light out of sight look like? So the lockdown protocol that we used is part of the standard response protocol. When the lockdown is called, and I do want to mention that we did unscheduled drills, but we didn't do unannounced. As you heard in that clip, we announced it as a drill. So there was no question about whether it was real or it was a practice. Um, And that's really important to help mitigate the trauma that students and and even teachers and staff could potentially face in one of these um, exercises. But what it looks like is when the call is made, The key steps are get the doors locked when you want to get the lights off to make sure that there's that added layer of concealment. It makes it harder for somebody to see what's going on in a room. And then you get out of sight. And that means moving into an area of the room where you can't be seen from the hallway door if there's a window. But out of sight also means maintaining silence. You know, you want to minimize anything that can draw attention to your room. There's another protocol that is called run, hide, fight. Can you differentiate the two? When Run, Hide, Fight was introduced, it was one of the first ones. It was a couple years after Columbine. And 
when it was designed, it was really targeted more towards office buildings and workspaces and areas where you have, you know, sort of this open area, like a Walmart, if you will. And where Renhide Fight is beneficial is in those situations where you can't secure behind a locked door, it gives you options of how to respond. So, you know, one of the things having done this project that we really try to use as a takeaway is when we're working with children, especially really young kids, they remember everything in the order that you tell them. And so giving them directives such as run, hide, fight signals to them that their first instinct should be to run. And that's not always the safest option, especially if they're in a classroom where they can secure down. If they were to run, they potentially put themselves in what's called the fatal funnel, which is what happened in um, Parkland when you come out and you're in the hallway and you're face to face with the shooter. And if we look at all of the shootings that have ever happened in schools, what we know is that the safest place anyone can be in these situations is behind a locked door. Door locks are proven time barriers. In um, only three cases has anybody been killed behind a locked door. And in none of those cases was it because that door lock failed. And in the case of the STEM shooting in Colorado, some students rushed at the shooter. How did you view the school's response? You know, in situations where, you know, getting behind a locked door is your best option and you're able to do that, we certainly encourage that. Um, There are instances we saw, of course, at the STEM school, we've seen it, you know, at other schools where you don't have that opportunity because by the time you could even get the door locked, the perpetrator is already in your room. And this is where having other options, you know, can be beneficial. Um, do I advocate for training students to fight shooters? Absolutely not. Um, I think when you're faced with that situation, your instincts will take over. Um, I've seen some training videos that have involved, you know, dogpiling on perpetrators and trying to yank guns out of their hands. And I don't think that that's anything that we should be training our students for. Um, you know, there, there are ways that we can train them to respond in emergencies that is a learning experience um, and mitigates trauma. And then there are ways that we can do it that certainly um, breeds trauma and fear. The study you did was published in the Journal of School Violence. What did you find after surveying kids before and after they've done these drills? So we surveyed students at three different points. We did an initial survey just to kind of get a baseline. How are you feeling, you know, in today's climate? We surveyed them after the first lockdown drill. And then the final survey came after we had given them training and conducted a second lockdown drill. What we found is over the course of, you know, this entire process, we actually found they were expressing greater familiarity with how to respond. So that builds their confidence. One of the things that we found was that they did express feeling less safe. Now, we didn't ask them specific measures about anxiety, but these particular students are in a different environment than, let's say, the students in the STEM school were. The district that we were working with is an inner city urban school district that these children are exposed on a daily basis to community-based violence. So while we can say that there's certainly a correlation that we found between this project and their feelings of safety, we can't for certain say it was a result of the lockdown drills because there's so many other variables that have to be taken into consideration. And we should say that, like you said before, you're sure to tell students and teachers that this is a drill. It's not real. Other schools have conducted drills without letting folks know that. And that certainly breeds a lot of um, trauma and anxiety. You know, 
The whole point behind doing drills is to build muscle memory. And that means that if you're on your very worst day, if somebody's in your building with a gun, when your mind goes blank, your body's going to do what it's been trained to do. We know like if a fire alarm goes off, for instance, everybody's initial instinct is get up and line up at the door because you're leaving the building. And so we're building that same kind of muscle memory. I should point out that there is a significant difference between drills and exercises. Drills, which is what we did, are just about practicing those motions so you get them familiar and your body learns them. Exercises, you know, are the more extreme examples that incorporate sights and sounds. So these are sort of the stories that we've been hearing, you know, making headlines where teachers are getting shot by pellets and kids are being exposed to the sound of gunfire or simulated gunfire, or you have crisis actors laying on the floor in a pool of blood or fake blood, I should say. You know, these things are make the situation seem more real, but it's not necessary to build that muscle memory to to have all of that going on. And what do you say to the concern that we are scaring our kids, even as we're building that muscle memory, for an event that's unlikely to happen? School shootings are still relatively rare and schools are still among the safest places for kids to be. You know, It's always better to have tools in your toolbox and never need them than to need them and not have them. And that's what happened in Parkland. You know, I grew up in an era before Columbine happened. I graduated high school the year before Columbine occurred. And I never had to go through a lockdown drill a day in my life because this wasn't to the concern level that it is today. Unfortunately, it's very short-sighted to say, well, we just shouldn't do these drills or we should only train teachers, which is another one of the common, you know, sort of talking points in this conversation. And the reality is if you look at something like Sandy Hook, you can't not train students because teachers get killed. And then you have a room full of students who don't know how to respond. You know, what I hope that our research is going to put out there is that there are ways that you can do this in a healthy manner that helps to mitigate that trauma, that, you know, we incorporate things such as debriefs where we talk to students about what they did, why they did it, how they can work together and how they, you know, what they can improve upon. And having them part of the process is really important because it gives them a voice. And I believe that that adds an extra layer of empowerment that if that worst day ever came, they would know what to do. And I do wonder, does the data demonstrate that training kids will ensure that they'll be more safe in the event of a shooting? You know, there's no way that we can guarantee 100 percent that anybody's ever going to be more safe in a shooting. The reality, as I tell students when we work together, is there's 9,999 things that can happen in a split second in one of these events. And there's no possible way that I can predict all of them. But what we are doing is we're giving them tools and we're empowering them to make decisions in the situation in that moment you know, when they can sort of take stock, if you will, of what's going on around them, what's their best plan? Is it to lock down? Are they out in a hallway? Is their best option to escape the school? What can they do with what they have? And so that's really what we're focused on is giving them the skills and the knowledge to make those decisions. Jacqueline, thank you so much. Thank you. Jacqueline Schulkraut recently completed a study about how students perceive lockdown drills and how drills affects the students' sense of safety. The study was published in last month's Journal of School Violence. Schulkraut is an associate professor of criminal justice at State University of New York in Oswego. She's also the author of Columbine, 20 Years Later and Beyond, Lessons from Tragedy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thank you.
Hey there, it's Vic Vela, the host of Weekend Edition here on CPR News. And whatever you're going to do this weekend, ski, go to a concert, or lounge on the couch with your dog like I do on my days off, know that it's easy to keep up with what's happening in the world around you. If you have a smart speaker, all you need to do is ask it to play CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is at your command anytime, hands-free, with your smart speaker. They are the missing middle, people who can't afford housing in Metro Denver and other parts of Colorado, but also people who can't find housing to begin with. People like Corey Salling and Carson Giles. They were finally able to afford a house in Green Valley Ranch through a pilot project by developer Oakwood Homes. It included a discount for Salling because she's a teacher. Without it? We would have been paying probably over what we would have been comfortable with for a house. Our goal was to not be like my fiance would call it, like house poor, where we couldn't afford to do anything in life other than pay a mortgage. Donna Bryson is Denverite's housing reporter. She recently assembled a panel in front of an audience at Curious Theater focused on the missing middle, the causes and the solutions. Let's listen in. The online real estate company Trulia released a report. They looked at wage data and homes currently for sale that people in Denver could buy spending no more than 30% of their income on mortgages. Trulia found that first responders, you know, police officers, firefighters, could afford about 30% of the homes on the market in Denver. Teachers could afford only about 5%. And restaurant workers could afford less than 1%. Trulia chose 30% of your income because many who have studied this issue say, unless you're pretty well off, if you're spending more than a third of your income on housing, you're not gonna have much left over for very much else for emergencies, for instance, a medical emergency, a car repair emergency. The Housing Colorado estimates that a quarter of all Coloradans are spending 50% of their income on housing. So those are the numbers that we're talking about when we're talking about the missing middle. The lack of affordable housing, both for sale and for rent, for people who teach, for people who look after the sick, for people who respond to those in danger, for people who allow us a night out every now and then. Tonight we're going to talk a little bit about how we got here and how we might navigate our way out of this out of this situation into one that's more sustainable for Denver families and for Denver as a whole if we want a diverse and vibrant city. I could guess you could call this a discussion about who is Denver for. And now we're going to talk to I'm going to introduce our panel. Right next to me is Laura Brzezinski. She oversees the city of Denver's strategic planning efforts for affordable housing manages staff administering a variety of housing programs funded through federal and local resources, and works to develop policies that promote inclusive communities in Denver. Prior to her time with, with the city, Laura worked for Denver City Council as a legislative aide, coordinating housing policy research and development. She has master's degrees in public administration and urban regional planning from the University of Colorado. Uh, next to Laura is Elena Wilkin. She's executive director of Housing Colorado. Her industry association serves professionals who are designing, developing, and increasing support for affordable housing in Colorado. Before coming to Housing Colorado, Elena was executive director of the Colorado Association of Transit Agencies, where she worked with a statewide coalition to pass transportation funding legislation. Okay. And last is Sue Powers. She's president of Urban Ventures, a Denver real estate development company that has for 20 years been providing We've been building mixed-income, mixed-use projects in and around downtown. One example is Aria Denver, a redevelopment of a 17-acre former convent in northwest Denver into a neighborhood that will include 400 residential units and commercial space. 
For the past nine years, Sue has been a board member of the Denver Health and Hospital Authority. She also serves on the advisory board of Elevation Community Land Trust and co-founded with Dana Crawford, Ma. <laughs> Mother is advocating for affordable housing. <laughs> and I'm gonna start in the middle since it's Missy Middle Night with Elena. <laughs> what factors have created unaffordability in both rental and ownership for middle income earners in Metro Denver? So I'm also the middle child, so that's very appropriate. I feel like I'm just finally in my right place. Um, so Housing Colorado is a statewide membership organization, but we also um, do a lot of data, a lot of research, because as a policy person, I, I really like to craft my policy based on what's actually going on. So in 2017, we came out with a study that was the factors of unaffordability. It's kind of a puzzling question. It's a relatively complicated situation. So we looked at kind of the five factors that go into unaffordability. And, and I'm going to start with a big picture. This is both on the rental side of housing, but also on the homeownership side, because many of the factors are similar. When you talk about what makes housing unaffordable in Denver, it's nothing that you're going to be like, oh, I had not expected that. But it's things, if you put all of them together, is why we're in the situation we are in today. So it's land, the cost of land. It's a market-based economy. And so as land gets scarcer, the price of land goes up. There's regulatory barriers to building housing. It's about what you can and can't build and how you have to build it and to what quality and what standards. So regulatory is one of them. The materials that go into our buildings have become more expensive. Again, we're now operating in a global market. We're competing with China for concrete and wood and steel and all the things that go into the buildings. What has also gotten more expensive, and our friends at Shift Research are digging, doing a deeper dive on this, is the actual finishes that we're putting into our houses. So it used to be, if you thought about you know, where many of us grew up in the 70s and 80s, you were probably perfectly happy with the avocado green stove and refrigerator set and the laminate countertops, and now it has to be brushed stainless steel and marble, right? So that adds to the cost, and once that becomes kind of the base or the expectation, you no longer have the choice to go to something cheaper because nobody offers it, right? So the finishes have also contributed to that. Labor in Denver is incredibly expensive, as we all know. It's just a very tight market. Um, and I have, I have construction companies that they will have drywallers walk off their site and go to a different site the next day because they're getting 25 cents more an hour. I mean, it's a really highly competitive market. If you get outside of Denver, it actually gets even worse. You get into the mountains and you're, you're in competition with the weather, and then you get into other parts of the state and it, the, the far-flung corners. It's just a really tight labor market all the way across the state. And then finally, profit. Susan and our developer friends aren't doing this for free, so that has to be a part of the equation. And there's a lot of debate about what that profit level should be, but I, I guess I feel like if you're going to put that kind of risk and lose that kind of sleep and put that kind of effort into it, we probably want to make it worth your while to take this kind of investment. So those are the factors that are going into the unaffordability in the housing construction market in Denver. And Laura, what lessons do you think Denver can learn from other cities who face similar challenges? And I'm thinking about Minneapolis, but you might have other places in mind. 
there have been some efforts by other cities like Minneapolis to allow for some of this missing middle housing types, those duplexes, those triplexes, within all single family neighborhoods throughout the city. Um, we do in our planning documents like Blueprint Denver, which is the land use and transportation plan for the city over the next 20 plus years, set a vision that would integrate more of these missing middle housing types throughout the city. But what we wanna make sure we're doing is doing that thoughtfully, um, adding duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes into more areas throughout the city can increase supply, which can help to address affordability, but supply alone doesn't create affordable housing necessarily at the middle and lower income levels. So we're trying to be thoughtful um, across our, our city, both in housing stability as well as with our partners in community planning development and certainly our, our neighborhoods in thinking about how we potentially leverage tools like the introduction of more missing middle housing types into areas alongside a commitment to to make some of those units truly affordable with a restriction that would cap the affordability to a specific income level for a specific period of time. Um, without those kinds of commitments and restrictions, there's the potential that those units aren't necessarily offered at an affordable price that would be available to middle income households. Um, and there's also the potential that without those kinds of um, considerations, we increase the value of properties that have a change in entitlement that might actually push out the residents that live there now and can't keep up with rising housing costs as the value of that property increases. If it goes from a single family zoning district today and tomorrow it's allowed to have a, a triplex or a fourplex on it, how do we make sure that we're um, thinking about strategies that help mitigate for involuntary displacement from rising values, rising costs, and thinking about how as we introduce missing middle housing types, it includes affordable housing that is income restricted. And Sue, from we've been talking about developers. <laughs> from your pr perspective, particularly for, for sale, what challenges are you facing when it comes to keeping housing attainable? Well, it's, it's all of the above. I mean, but you know, certainly the, the rising cost in producing it is a big deal. I mean, it's and it's real. It's not, it's, uh, I mean, so the, I think the, I'm going to jump to what are the solutions, if you don't mind. And, and I think it talks about what the components are of the problem. Land is a big issue, and the, co the, the cost of land continues to go up. So the ability to find land that is available now, whether it's excess uh, city land or uh, faith-based communities, there are a lot, of, a lot of things that have never been talked about in the past that are on the table now um, because of this problem. And, you know, kind of non-traditional players in this in this arena. I mean, I think the faith-based community is, is great to step up and and they they say, well, you know, we really believe in these these values, so we we want to help with with a um, with this. So we'll throw the land in. And this may not be on the for sale side, it might be on the rental. But I think that that will help. Um, certainly the school districts, I mean any large employers, I mean you look at you were talking about the the first responders, the the nurses, the every, all those, you know, look at the campuses of hospitals. Do they have properties that are vacant? Do they have properties that they could make available? It's their employees, it's to, in their self-interest of large employers in the city to keep their employees living here, and that's becoming harder and harder. 
I think the other part of it is, um, this is not, and it can't be, the highest priority for the city. I mean, I'd love it to be, because it's kind of where I think part of, I mean, it's, it's what we've been, it's what we've developed, and I think it's, it's, it is missing, is, but if you look at the, the needs, housing needs in this community, and you look at, well, should we invest in housing for the homeless, or for this, the missing middle, it's pretty hard to justify taking money that was being, in, that you're investing in creating housing for the homeless and put it over there with, with if it's a, I will pick out millennials, I'm trying not to do this, but um, you know, younger people who are in their, early in their career, who we really want living downtown and staying downtown when somebody decides that they're gonna get married and have a child and there's no place for them to go. Um, you know, and they wanna invest, they wanna, wanna buy something they can afford. It's, that's, a, that's a hard philosophical issue for the city to be in and, and for people. So there aren't really funding sources that are on the for sale side that are really gonna help make up that gap. So the only way that, um, I mean, we've, we have tried kind of partnering with um, other developers that didn't want to build it on, they had a requirement for affordable, they didn't want to build it there, so we took their money and we built it on ours and lowered the prices by the amount they would have done in theirs, or we got the land free from another developer who didn't want to build it on their property. So, I mean, it's just that kind of, if it's in your, if it's something that you want to do as a developer and it's just part of kind of our, our DNA, to build to to work on that part of the the housing crisis um, in the city, then you got to be creative and find ways to do it. We're listening to a panel discussion moderated by Donna Bryson, housing reporter at Denverite, which is part of CPR News. It's focused on the missing middle, people who can't afford or can't find housing in Colorado. On the panel, Laura Brunzinski oversees the city of Denver's strategic planning efforts for affordable housing, Elena Wilkins, executive director of Housing Colorado, and Sue Powers, president of Urban Ventures, a Denver real estate development company. They answered questions from an audience at the Curious Theater in Denver. Hey, I'm, I'm Dave. I work with Donna. I know in my personal life what the stakes are for young couples who want to have a kid, can't find a place to live. They move to Arvada. It's annoying for me because uh, they're my friends and I want to see them as Arvada is very far away. What I'm wondering about is the larger stakes for a city where families cannot afford to stay. What do we know about that? What happens in a city where people age out of it? Uh, it's a good question. You can probably look at a couple cities like San Francisco and others, and they become a little bit more sterile. They, they become less diverse. They become more, I wouldn't say playgrounds for the upper income, but that's to some extent what happens. And in addition to that, I mean, you have people that are the service industry that are I mean, that, that we depend on in this community to work in the businesses that are here, and that, that could be on the rental side, but they're probably as effective, more, more effective today than even people that are, that are, that we're, that you and I are describing. But I, but I think you just, you lose your kids for one thing. You lose the school districts. I mean, that you can look at the, the enrollment levels that are at DPS right now. And you can see what's happening in neighborhoods where that's declining. Uh, that's not good for public schools. So I, I think, you know, join in here, others, but you can, right. you, I think those are the things that would come to my mind. It's not, it's not a healthy thing to happen. I would also say, and this is drawing on my background in transportation, is 
you, by, by pushing people out farther, you're actually increasing congestion and pollution and the wear and tear on your roads. So it's, it's not just a, we're going to, again, I'm back to the boundary, we draw a line around the city and this is Denver and everybody is here in Denver or you move out. But the, the cross patterns amongst the Denver metro region, I mean, if you ever pull up a map of, you can buy the data from Verizon, it's like this, it's beyond spaghetti. I mean, it's just insane how much cross traffic there is. So when your friends go to Arvada, they don't just stay in Arvada. Now you're driving there and driving out, and they're driving to their work and their back, and they're driving. So you're actually, the, the wear and tear on the city's infrastructure is exponentially more when we start pushing people away from where they can work and go to school and buy things and things like that. Hi, uh, I'm Vince from Denver, and I was intrigued by something the developers said about employers or industries maybe stepping up to this, and I'm wondering what is the responsibility or maybe even what is the desire of industries? You mentioned healthcare. We know hospitals are, have capital construction projects all over town and making money hand over fist. Is there a desire on their part to like, we need to do something to, to house the, the people that are working for us? I think it varies. I mean, you certainly see, it's not in this industry, but you see Google that invested in housing for employees. I mean, there's a lot going on in the Bay Area in that, in that realm right now. I'm not aware of any healthcare employers that have done this yet, but certainly school districts around the country, and, and Denver hopefully will have this conversation too, school districts have, have been doing this for the last 10, 15 years, where they use their foundation or they use a another entity to build housing for, their, for, for the teachers. You know, it is in their interest. I mean, if they can't find employees, I don't know that the city can force them to do that, but, but I would like to think that they would be looking around saying, where are we going to recruit from? And if we really want people that are st take, taking that shift that starts at midnight, you know, do we really want them driving here from Edgewater or from, you know, wherever, uh, from Thornton? So I, I think that this is kind of a community conversation of who has this responsibility. It's a shared responsibility in my mind. And so how do we, how do we nudge that along? From my perspective, the public sector plays a very important role in addressing affordability as a convener, as an investor, as a policy driver, but we can't solve all of these housing challenges without nonprofit partners, developers, private institutions, philanthropic partners. So um, it takes all of these partners working together to address our affordability challenge. So I want to um, highlight that point, but also want to just give you one example of where we do have a partnership with employers um, and where we are building um, really some of those relationship and opportunities. We have a partnership with the Denver Housing Authority called the Lower Income Voucher Program, Live Denver Program, where the idea is to buy down the affordability of market rate units to a price point that would be affordable to a, a middle-income renter. This is a specifically renter program. This, the cost to help offset the rent is shared by the city as well as dollars that are contributed from an employer. We have a partnership um, with St. Joseph's Hospital that they're using um, this partnership and opportunity to to provide affordable housing options for their employees. So just to give you an example, if a market rate unit would rent for $1,500 and um, a participant in this program could afford $1,000 of that, 
the Live Denver program split between the city and the employer would pay the Delta that $500 to make that unit affordable to the family. So it's one example of where we have employer partnerships um, to leverage limited city resources with outside resources, but I, th I certainly think there's opportunities for expanded partnerships, recognizing how important all of these players are um, in addressing our affordability challenges. I think you're also going to see some legislation this year um, in the 2020 legislative session um, put forth by Habitat for Humanity that would allow employers to contribute to a down payment account on behalf of their employees, similar to the way that they now contribute to a 401k or HSA account. So that would be, I think it's either tax-free or it's a tax, I can't remember the status of it, but um, so we're looking at some of those ways that employers can assist their employees in at least uh, purchasing their home. Hi, my name is Nick, uh, Denver resident, and I'm wondering, uh, as a Denver transplant, like a lot of people are, how do we take into account all the people who are moving into Denver in addition to kind of supporting the folks who are already here? What's the, what's the right balance there? Well, <laughs> um, part of me would say that some of the, the increasing land costs are, are a result of a lot of people moving here and paying too much for the properties, uh, but we welcome you. Um, <laughs> a lot done here. Um, but it is. I mean, it's it, it's a it's a fine balance there because it's uh, when people are coming from California, where our prices look so good, and they pay above market and they're bidding on properties, and the values are you know keep going up higher. Um, it's not necessarily the value; the costs are, that they're paying are, are higher. Uh, it just it just has multiplied, and that's part of what what we're dealing with today. I would like everybody to go back to their employer and say. I didn't even know about the Habitat project. That's pretty cool. Let's participate in that. Can you participate in that? I mean, I think it's this is only going to change from an employer standpoint if people go to their employers and start saying these are issues you want us to be here. We can't afford we can't afford this. And it's some of this is going to have to be a grassroots, you know, talk to your employer kind of thing. And some of it has to be institutional. But it is it's your question about you know, the new people versus people are here is a, is a big challenge because people that have been here for generations and many, many, many families of color that have been here for, for centuries, but people don't recognize that, um, they, you know, they're getting pushed out of Denver and it's not right. I think it's, a, it's an important question, something that um, we've heard as we have been having dialogues with community and stakeholders over the last several years um, as part of the development of our strategic plans related to housing. We expect to continue this conversation as part of a, a new department, but we have had some recommendation for the exploration of a policy approach that has been used in other communities that would provide a preference in a portion of newly funded housing units for residents that are at risk of or that have been displaced from the city of Denver. Uh, my name's Frank and I am a resident of City Park West. I uh, live in a row home that we bought in 2009 that we would never be able to buy today and we were just very fortunate. And, um, and I just wish it didn't come down to a matter of luck in a lot of these situations. Can you give any examples of a story that you've been able to tell that has been able to like speak to the heart of somebody and help move them through a thought process uh, around around these kinds of issues? It's a it's a really good question, um, and this is not a local story, but I think it's it's something that is replicable if, um, here, San Rafael, which is a suburb north of San Francisco. 
Um, this is probably 10, 15 years ago. The Chamber of Commerce, of all people, because if this was an employer issue, they started buying advertising on buses and billboards that said, with pictures of firefighters and teachers, and they said on them, the firefighters said, I'm so glad I could save your life. It's too bad I can't live here. Or <laughs> I'm so happy I can teach your children. I wish I could live here. And it pushed them, it pushed that community to issue bonds to, to start addressing the issue. I, I think we need a campaign. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's, I mean, I feel like this is a crisis and I don't feel like we have enough energy in this community to say, or the state to say, we have to do something here. And the stories, the stories are really what make, what make a difference here. So I really appreciate you asking that question. And, and, it, and it's a lesson for all of us that we, we need to kind of get out of our, a little bit out of our, um, whatever we're in, our, our numbers, um, and tell some more of those stories. I mean, because I, I have folks that bought into this, into the ARIA project um, that are, you know, young couple with two kids. They, they could never have been in Denver without that. And we need their faces on the billboards, you know? We need, we need, so we need to figure out how to, how to launch that campaign. And, and we have groups of people that are, I mean, the, the YIMBY group, the, I mean, we have a lot of disparate groups now that are working. We have to figure out how to bring us together to tell that story. Excerpts from the recent panel discussion focused on ways to create affordable housing and more housing for the missing middle. It was organized and hosted by Denverite's Donna Bryson. Denverite is part of CPR News. Before we go, a word about gardening. It may be winter, but now is the time to plan ahead for your spring garden. Or maybe you're trying your hand at growing some greens indoors. What gardening and yard care quandaries or questions do you have? Send them to us at news at CPR.org or tweet at Colorado Matters. A CSU Master Gardener joins us on an upcoming show with answers and advice. Thanks today to our executive producer, Carl Bielek, our producers, Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon, and our fellow Claire Cleveland. My co-host is Ryan Warner. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. Mm-hmm.